Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We are up now. Cool. Okay. Peter, Peter Bowser, welcome back to the HPO podcast. You are our second return guest and uh we're very excited to have you on you know you're one of our i think you were like one of our you said like our first or second guest wasn't he i think six or seven if i'm not mistaken okay one of our very first one of our very first guests yeah. and, and that was a very well received show and now that we have a wider audience you know i think there's you know i think the message needs to continue to get out but i know you had some other maybe particular things you wanted to chat about today and so let's uh We'll skip with all the introductions and all that stuff, and let's just get into some of this stuff, Peter. And I know you, like myself and many others, are you know very concerned about the direction that we are heading, you know, or, or being asked to head with regard to our diet. Uh, and, and it's based on, in my view, uh, a lot of very poorly done or weak evidence. And so, what do you what do you want to talk about today, Peter? Let's let's just get, get going. Well. First of all, thanks for the uh, invitation or the acceptance to come back. Um, yeah, have you been up to anything since then? <laughs> um, the few things have been happening. Uh, congratulations. Um, I am in full agreement with what you said about we live in a time where people are continuing a dietary message that's several decades out of date. Um, and we're now seeing, as has been the case all along, but now they seem to be trying to justify themselves, not so much on the health side, although they'll kind of reference that, but now they're going to try to um, justify their position based on equally weak information regarding environmental impact. And so people are confused, people want to do the right thing, Get information so they're making bad decisions, and that cuts right across the the entire population from producers through to consumers. And just trying to continue introducing people to each other because the standard sources of information are broken. We're not getting the kind of information we need. This is in the face of an unsustainable Peter, your your microphone's cutting out just a little bit for some reason, at least on my end, Zach. I don't know if you're picking up the same. Maybe I don't know. If uh, it okay. might actually just be a little too close. Okay. That's so better. we'll try that. There, that's, that's a little better. better. Let's get Peter. Let's get. I mean, and that's an that's an overview. And let's because you're you know your area of expertise around involves you know, the animal agricultural side of that. And so I know we, we talk very frequently on the health problems that are out there. I mean, with regard to the, the fallacies regarding health and particularly animal agriculture, but let's, let's talk a little bit about, 
you know, what's going on from the animal agricultural side? Because, I, like I said, that's, you know, I think that's where your purview, your, your main purview is, although I know you're very familiar with the health arguments. But let's let's talk a little bit about that stuff. You said that uh, the environmental argument is is just as weak, you know, on an evidence standpoint, as is the uh, the health argument. Now, we're going to have, you know, Frank Mintlon is going to come back on the show uh, in a couple of weeks to talk about methane in particular. But what what, what what do you mean by the environmental arguments are weak? What, why do you say that? Well, we can talk about how they make assumptions and use them in their models. Um, but their assumptions are not well aligned with modern thoughts on human nutrition. So, for example, we find people making ridiculous claims about you can get as much protein from broccoli as you can from beef. Well, that's only if you are looking at crude protein values. And even in that example, it's it's probably, they probably being truthful to the evidence, but you get the idea that we look at at cereal production, for example, and we look at how much crude protein could be harvested per acre, and wouldn't it be better just to eat that directly? And what that, of course, ignores is the the quality of protein that we get from animal products is far superior to the quality of protein that we get from plant products. And if we actually do a fair comparison on essential nutrient yield, then we find, as opposed to crude protein or calories or things like that, that we find that the environmental footprint, if you will, of animal products ends up being very comparable to the plant um, sources. And, and then there are aspects of this that haven't yet begun to enter into the calculations. So, for example, while I know we want to focus more on the agricultural side, right now all the calculations of sustainability and for human consumption side. So I, I want people to look at sustainability from pasture to plot as in funeral, right? Uh, I, I want the whole thing to be considered. And right now, if there's a consideration about human nutrition in our sustainability conversations, it is informed by the received wisdom, the conventional wisdom, of what constitutes a healthy planet. And as we could obviously uh, agree, that is a problematic assumption when we're facing the the reality that we're in today. So there's that. Um, My role has been to kind of stand between my various tribes and try to introduce my agricultural tribes to my informed human nutrition tribes and get them to talk with each other. We have a lot to learn from each other, and I think we can help conversation advance if we can do that. Um, it, it, it surprises me some of the things that the different communities know that aren't known by the other, and trying to 
share information back and forth seems to be something that I get the opportunity to do frequently. Peter, let me uh, just interject something here, you know, and, and, I, and I understand what you're talking about. And I know this, you know, a lot of this material, I mean, at least at least at least in a reasonable conversational level. But there are a lot of people out there that, I mean, you really just got to hit them with a stick. I mean, you know, one of the problems I see in this, you know, this healthy food, low carb, paleo, ancestral health, eat real food and stop eating garbage movement, you know, and, and, and the not plant-based movement is that it is sometimes difficult to just, just to, to distill the message down simple enough that the average person can understand it. So can you just hit us over the head with, when you say protein quality in animal tissue or animal products is better than plant tissue, what are the numbers? Can we say like, what are some, dis, you know, these are facts that are, that are very easy to, 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 to say that, that, that somebody can out there and say that, you know, animal protein contains X percentage more whatever than plant protein, you know, because these are, the, I think we have to really uh, get this message in a very bite-sized chunks that are, that are five second sound bites. And, and how do we do that? And, and do you have any of that information that like, like we can, we can, you know, get out there? Well, we can certainly try uh, and there's lots of information available, but uh, right now, if you look at a food label, if you look at most tables of nutrients for human use, uh, you're most likely to see a single protein value, and that's a crude protein value. May or may not be labeled that way, but that one is. When it is crude protein, what that is is someone has determined the total nitrogen percentage in that food substance. They've multiplied that percentage of nitrogen by 6.25 to create a crude protein value just how that comes. Now, we're feeding monogastric humans. We're not feeding ruminants. Ruminants can utilize non-protein nitrogen, so this isn't a big deal for them. There's no essential amino acid in ruminant nutrition. It's not the case with monogastrics. People in swine production have known this for years, and they make their living by carefully balancing rations based on amino acid. Several years ago, the recommendation was made that we should be talking about essential amino acids as if they are individual macronutrients, instead of talking about total protein. And we should be always talking about an amount of protein, not percent of calories. Again, these are problems that we have within our community that need to be overcome. Um, if you look at the if you go and you add up the total amino acids in, well, let's start with cooked beef muscle and cooked navy beans, you'll find that the crude protein value of the navy beans is like a tenth of a percent greater than the cooked beef muscle. I think we're somewhere around 22, 23%. I could be off a little bit, but it's of that nature. Now, if you go and you add up how much of that is actual amino acids and you call that true protein and you look at that percent of true protein, it's 92% or so in the beef muscle, 58% in the navy beans. And then we can talk about how the navy beans don't provide complete 
protein because all the amino acids aren't there in the right ratios. We now have a new form of protein quality assessment, which is abbreviated DIAAS, Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score. Uh, when we look at that, we now find that can have values for meat and other animal products that are in the 110, 120s compared to, say, cereals, which are down in the 50s. Uh, many of the beans, not soy, but many of the beans are probably going to be in the 80s. Um, I'm a little weak on that one, so forgive me. Um, but interestingly enough, when we take meat and we cook it, when we take and we ferment it to make salami or we cure it to make bacon or we emulsify it and cook it to make bologna, we actually increase this diass value relative to the raw meat ingredients that went into those processed products. So now what we see is we can take lower value pieces of meat, we can make them into a processed meat product that actually has a higher amino acid value in our diet. So, and, and, and part of the problem that I think the animal agriculture community faces is because of the lipophobia that they've been operating under for the last several decades, they talk about protein exclusively. And what that does is it puts them on par with the, you know, fake, you know, animal protein sources that are coming at us either wholly plant materials or lab-grown replacements. Hey, Peter, let me, let me, before we get into the fat stuff like that, because I want to, just to make sure I have this clear, and I'm, I'm aware that the FAO has adapt, adopted this dietary uh, uh index of indispensable amino acids, you know, and they've changed that or they're going to change that. And it shows that clearly animal products are much higher, a much better source of indispensable amino acids. Those are the ones that we really have to have. And I think if I, if I remember correctly, whey protein probably is the highest, you know, even better than beef. And so we see that. And then when I look at that scale, I saw that soy was probably the best source of animal protein out there, although soy comes with its own sort of negatives with protease inhibitors and, and, and questionably about the phytoestrogens and stuff like that. So, but I mean, it's very important to say when you talk about a monogastric, you know, a pig being a good model for feeding humans because we, we share, the, uh, you know, a kind of a similar digestive system, whereas a cow being a ruminant has a much more complex system and they can get by with eating, you know, the, the, the nitrogen. And, and, and that's, and, and again, I think it's a very important point that when we look at it, when if I pick up a can of, can of beans and I look at how much protein's in there, that doesn't tell me how much protein I'm getting or how much I can use. That's that's just a basic, very rudimentary assessment of what, what's there. And so what we really need to know is what can I actually use as a human being? What are the essential amino acids percentage in there? And when I compare, you know, whey protein or dairy or beef to something like a bean or a piece of broccoli, which is often touted as this wonderful uh, protein source, they don't even come close. And, and then when we get to the uh, environmental sustainability uh, uh, calculus, my question becomes, are they taking into effect 
the sustain when they're making the sustainability argument, that information, I know, I know Don Lehman has done a paper on that saying that we could feed humanity more calories on a plant-based diet, but everybody would be missing nutrients. And I think that's, that's something, but how does, so, but I want to talk about the fat because I think that's important too, but, but let's, let's talk about the calculations. If we were to do the calculations based on, uh, protein quality or nutrient quality like you're you're alluding to how would that how would that change the conversation well right now it, the figures that i've seen we're getting only 30 some percent of humanity's protein is coming from animal products if we're going to replace them with plant sources one figure is close to 1.5 is the value of animal products protein over plant source proteins. Now that's using biological value. That's kind of an antiquated uh, figure. So we could say anywhere between 1.5 and 2x is probably what we'd have to be looking at replacing. And no, I'm virtually certain that the people promoting plant source diets is a way to save the earth. Um, have not looked at that in part because part of their message is human beings are eating too much protein anyway. So, which again is a myth. Uh, we know current recommendations are based on avoiding efficiency, and we also know that they're insufficient for growing children and they're insufficient for older adults. Um, so we have abundant reason to suspect that human beings would do better at a higher level of protein intake. Again, the, the recommendations are based at avoiding deficiency. Well, that's a different issue than optimal health. <laughs> and, and then we have all the evidence about uh, what we eat is, is influenced by our protein needs and intake partners. And so if we're eating a poor quality carbohydrate-based, poor protein quality carbohydrate-based diet, we'll eat more of that diet to try to get the protein we need. It means we're eating more carbohydrates. It means everything down to human fat. So the, the, the shorter answer is no, they're not considering that in their calculations. And then you can see additional evidence because they interchange terms like arable land with agricultural land and they act as if agricultural land is all arable it's all suitable for cultivation and crop production and it isn't and and, and that's not controversial but so many times you'll find them using those terms interchangeably that it can't be an accident yeah, I mean, I saw a graphic you put up showing, you know, the you know of all the available land we have to grow food, whether it's animal or plant food. Uh, you know, it's something like, you know, I don't know what the ratio is, three to one, four to one, where we can grow animals, and, and only and only a small percentage of that we can actually grow plants on. Can you can you give us more details on that, Peter, or, or the numbers, the statistics? Sure. Um... You know, if, if if we look at the entire Earth's surface, the last graphic I put up was just looking at land surface. But if we look at the entire globe and its surface, only about 4%, and it's probably less, is suitable for cultivation. At the same time, we've got 15% 
that is suitable as rangeland or pasture. Long-term grassland shouldn't be cultivated. So, you know, we have roughly four times the amount of land that's suitable for food production via ruminant animal uh, agriculture of some kind. Varies in productivity, varies in potential, but that's there. And then we could add another 10% that is forest. We can develop agroforestry systems where uh, we're producing trees and grass and we're grazing animals of some type and producing food while we're producing uh, timber or whatever other products we're, we're, we're producing in those systems. And there's some interesting work going on around the world in this. So now we're talking about somewhere approaching up the quarter of the earth surface is suitable for some form of ruminant animal agriculture, right? Then we have to also acknowledge that animals are thoroughly integrated into our cropping systems. So for example, in the Southern Plains, you can find a great deal of wheat pasture, for example, that is grazed, actually wheat for grain. It is pastured at some point in its production cycle. So summer or early fall, it grows, the animals graze it, and then at some point in late winter, early spring, they have to remove the animals if they want that to go to a grain crop. So, okay, that's an integration. We also have to acknowledge that for every hundred pounds of usable product that's produced in crop agriculture, we produce 37 pounds of byproduct or waste. That that is best utilized in ruminant animal agriculture systems because otherwise it's a cost, it's an expense, it's an environmental um, be, um, uh, drain. Um, we could talk about grazing crop residues. So if you're going to grow corn, uh, you got corn stover, the stalks and whatever left over in the field after harvest, we can run beef animals in those systems and get food value out of what's otherwise a byproduct. And there's lots of examples of this. Um, so this idea that it's either animal or plant is misleading. Again, they're integrated currently, they'll always remain that way. And then we have this huge difference in global surface that's suitable for ruminant animal agricultural systems of some kind relative to what we could use to actually produce crops uh, that could be utilized directly by you. So Peter, if I can just jump in real quick. Um, so like just to kind of summarize what you just said, because I think this is a common uh, kind of back and forth I see when this topic is discussed is, you know, people will say like animal agriculture is 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 good because it kind of works synergistically with the land that the animals are on uh you know ultimately someone will jump in and say oh yeah but then you got to consider the fields and the rainforest that are cleared to grow corn and stuff to feed the cattle when they're finished on 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 grain uh so are what you so what you're saying is that's kind of missing half the piece of the puzzle and that other half would be yeah, we have some of these monocropping situations that are both feeding humans and grain-finished cattle, but those aren't just fields being used just for that. Those fields are also uh, working within the, the cattle 
the, the cattle side of things? Yeah, I guess it would be important to recognize that the same field can produce multiple crops either in subsequent years or in the same year. So we can produce, um, say, soybeans and wheat on the same ground as a rotation. Um, it's also important to recognize that grazing animals are being shown to have benefit in soil health as part of a rotation. So we've gone through a significant period of time where we seem to have had a specialization crop agriculture versus animal agriculture. And we're seeing that slowly coming back together again um, in the sense of soil health. Um, as I said, grazing animals seem to produce improvements in soil health. And this is all assuming appropriate management. Um, the point about deforestation um, that may have been true at one point in time there's evidence that that trend is reversing so again we have citing figures that may not be appropriate but in any case that's happening in parts of the world not in North America not in Europe we're actually seeing a reforestation um, in in North America for example there's more forest today than there was in the 60s um, and, and there's lots of reasons for that. Also, the story in places like Brazil is a little more complicated. Uh, it gets simplified to they're cutting down forest to produce pasture to grow beef uh, when what ha typically happens is the pasture land goes out of pasture into soybeans so the animals get displaced to somewhere and then as a step in the conversion of forest to cropland to produce soybeans, they'll graze cattle in on those fields for some period of time while they're completing the conversion process. So it wasn't beef that drove the deforestation, it was soybeans. And while people point to uh, driving that consumption, it's fair to say that you know all of the soybean oil is going into human consumption. And then my product of soy oil production is a protein meal that itself can go in many directions, right? And in some cases, yes, it goes to livestock production. But it also, unfortunately, I would say, is going into human uh, feed sources. Peter, I think that's, you know, that's, that's an interesting point because we, we you know, you know, the fact that the forests are regaining ground in the United States and Europe and, and, and places like that, and most of the beef that we eat, you and I eat, is grown in the United States. So really the, the impact that I have by not eating beef on deforestation is almost zero. Now, when we talk about Brazil, we say, well, yes, yeah, soybeans are being grown and yes, they're feeding some of that byproduct of the soybean production to the cattle because they'll eat anything. You can feed these cattle so many different foods, so many waste products that come from our human food production needs, whether it's soybean oil, soybean meal, whether it's corn stalks, whether it's stems and leaves and shoots from other, other crops. They, they do that. And that's one of the nice things that they have. But you know, the, the, the point that they're the reason they're growing those soybean crops is not so they can make waste to feed the cattle, although that does occur. It's because soybean oil is used incredibly in, in, in incredible amounts of food in human consumption. So that's the, the main reason for growing these crops. 
Um, and, let and me ask you. There's also a certain amount of biofuel as well. I mean, there's sure, that possibility. Sure. But yes, indeed. Sure, but I mean, it's for human consumption. Same thing with palm oil. I mean, I think one of the main, palm, palm, you know, palm oil is clearly causing deforestation, particularly in places like Indonesia and, and places like that, where the main utilization of that palm oil, my understanding, is a fuel additive. They're using it to fuel, you know, put, put into cars and stuff like that. And of course, we use palm oil for foodstuffs too. So it's not just, deforestation is not just a cow only issue. It's a lot, of, it's more of a human issue. But let me go back to, because this is an interesting statistic that I read. I want to see if there's any, if you've got any knowledge about this, because we, you know, one of the criticisms about, uh, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, have animals and you're going to convert them to food, and particularly if you're going to feed them grain, which could otherwise be, you know, utilized for human food, which as we talked about is a lower quality source of food anyway, you know, so if we feed everybody grain, we have maybe a lot of people that aren't starving, but they're in poor health. And the, one of the things I saw is, you know, in the United States, you know, the, the main grain that cattle eat is corn, right? Correct. If I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. And what I've, what I've been told is the amount of corn that is raised for cattle represents about 2% of our agricultural land, you know, and our arable land, I should say, you know, and so uh, that is a very small percentage, you know, considering that, you know, 98, you know, I mean, obviously there's some that goes to chickens and pigs, but I mean, we're talking about cattle specifically, and those are the ones that are often most demonized based on, you know, greenhouse gases and, and things like that. We're seeing that, you know, all the corn grown in the United States, much of it goes into ethanol production. You know, obviously humans eat a small portion of it. Uh, some of it goes into stiller, you know, for, for alcohol. Some of it's exported. But cattle themselves don't eat that much, you know, relative to what we say. And so we all, we have this thing that people will say, well, you know, you're feeding cows and they're destroying the, the, the environment through monocropping as well. But when you find out that only 2% of the U.S. cropland is dedicated to growing corn for cattle, is there some truth to that or am I just making that up, Peter? No, no, you're not making that up. I, my, I'm, I'm a little unclear whether they're talking about 2% of the cropland or 2% of the corn acreage. I, um, I'm a little unclear on that, but it, it ends up being a very small percentage of land that actually is producing. Now, part of that is because we have high yield agriculture. Um, the other part is because if you look at a life cycle basis, um, the typical grain finished steer um, on a life cycle basis, only 10% of its lifetime feed consumed is grain. So 80% of its lifetime feed consumed is a high fiber forage of some kind. And then you've got some percent that's going to be minerals and other things. So the vast majority of feed resource used to produce a typical grain finished steer is in any way close to being consumable by human beings. Now, the other thing to acknowledge is a lot of the grain that goes into animal agriculture is of a lower grade than would go into human agriculture or sorry human nutrition the human food chain so food for humans feed for animals so feed grade is different than food grade and and that's not an insignificant issue so at the end of the day this this idea that this this competition going on in fact 
the animals increase the protein supply for humanity. We, we feed a lower quality resource and then the animals produce a higher quality, greater volume of animal protein. And the figure can be four to one or more when we get to the end, you know, again, depending on how we look at things. So uh, again, this, I, I've, I've had people come up to me after presentations and say, wait a minute, you mean that animals don't spend their whole life, you know, a beef animal doesn't spend its whole life in a cage, let alone a pen which in a feed yard is a very large structure, right? But it's called a pen, right? Let alone they don't just get corn. No, all of those are misperceptions that they still get a significant amount of hay or silage or some human unutilizable resource, even when they're in the last, you know, three to four months of their life that is spent in the finishing um, phase of the beef production cycle. Yeah, Peter, we actually, we actually had Danny Beer on a, a rancher up in uh, South Dakota come on a couple episodes ago, and, and she had highlighted that. And I, I admittedly had no clue either that she said what they did is just what you said. They're not feeding them corn in the winter when they are like in the barn. They're they're feeding them mostly hay that they put in silos over the course of the year when it was, when it was growable. So they're still kind of getting, I guess, more or less a dried out grass based diet as opposed to just a, a pure corn diet or something like that when they get to the winter months. And um, you know, one, one kind of follow up question I had in regards to the food versus feed thing that you were talking about too is, you know, one kind of counter I'll hear from time to time is like, well, if we just turned, this land we're using for animal agriculture into land that we can use for human plant food and switch from growing feed to growing food, we would feed more people or something to something kind of along those lines. What are some of the problems with that? Like, like, are we, what kind of unforeseen consequences, I guess, would we experience as humans if we decided to turn all of our animal agriculture lands into human food lands? So two words dust bowl <laughs> um, that we have uh, a great deal of land that should not be in under tillage which tillage is of some kind is typically necessary to produce the annual food crops so your grains your legumes or pulses is another word that people from other countries might be more familiar with, beans, peas, those kinds of, uh, and, and then certainly any vegetable production. Um, you, you, you have to have pillage, you have to have a certain amount of fertility, you have to have a certain amount of water in order to produce those crops. And, and, and differs based on where it is and a number of issues impact suitability for crop production. And so when we go and we say less than 4% of the Earth's surface is suitable for cultivation, that's what can be cultivated. If you go outside of that area, okay, maybe you can apply a great deal of inputs, and energy, and resources to change its suitability, um, but then nature votes last, and she has a way of back with unexpected consequences for doing that. So uh, 
the vast majority of the agricultural land in the world is not suitable for crop production and only a relatively small uh, so so then we're left with a significant portion of that total land area is is in fact pasture or rangeland and it's pasture or rangeland primarily at this point because of suitability now a lot of crop land in the united states is grassland and converted right so the if you think of iowa iowa was tall grass prairie until we had settlement we had development so plow it produce corn, produce whatever other crop, but it's grassland in its natural state. So what we have as, as resources dictated by location and dictated by limitations, and then we can look at what happened to our crop land over time. And I got to visit North Dakota recently. Um, probably not the best season to do it in I'd like to go back in the summer um, but the soils that are in parts of North Dakota are some of the most soils there uh, and if, if you you know dig a pit you know so just you know get a backhoe out and soil profile side very uppermost part most you know, richest in organic matter, we call A horizon. Then there's a bit below it we call B horizon. Then there's sort of lowest level, we call C horizon. They did a lot of soil mapping back in the 50s and 60s to try to characterize the soil resource in the United States. And so these maps are available for most of the United States now. They can now go back to those same Places we did the original characterization work and look at what that soil looks like today compared to what it was like 50 years ago, right? And when they do that, they see that the top of the sea horizon is now 19 inches closer to the soil surface today than it was back in the 50s or 60s when they first mapped that same area. What that means is they've lost that much soil. So the cropping systems have resulted in erosion, both water and wind. And that's the degree of soil loss. Now, that's a significant problem for it. It leads to water quality. It leads issues. It, it leads to... Um, loss of productivity, all manner of environmental problems. So this is what happens when we farm with less than optimal practices. And it's it's not to cast aspersion at what people did. They, you know, many cases, they knew how to do. We now know how to do things a little better, we think, we hope. Um, so all of that is again speaking to agricultural land is not equal in its potential. And whatever we do on the land has the potential to have impacts, right? And even just observing the environment we're in has an impact. 
So we're not good at weighing those out and saying, well, this is good, this is bad, this is what we should do, this is what we shouldn't do. Uh, at the end of the day, something's got to die if humans are going to live because of the nature of our digestive system, right? And then we're left with saying, well, how do we weigh the cost benefits of our food production systems that are going to provide the nutrition that human beings need? And, and the point that I try to emphasize is um, the future of humanity will require that we get better at ruminant animal agriculture, both in terms of productivity and efficiency. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of HPO Podcast is brought to you by a company named Fat Snacks. That's Fat Snacks with an X. Fat Snacks is a company that makes a cookie that is keto, low carb, and high fat. They use ingredients like almond flour, coconut flour, and butter to make a soft bake cookie with one to two net grams of carbs and eight grams of fat per cookie. It comes in flavors such as chocolate chip, lemon, and peanut butter. This personally is a, an option that I've used in the past when I'm traveling, when I'm in a situation where I might be busy and on the go for quite some time and just there's a scarcity of what I would consider high quality food options. This is a great thing that's easy to pack and bring along and, and get you out of a pinch in a situation like that. Uh, I also see this as a really great option for parents with children who want to send them to school, to practice, or to a friend's house and don't want them to overdo some of the more traditional options that are sugar and vegetable oil-based cookies. Uh, if you'd like to check out this product, please head over to their website at fatsnacks.com and with the promo code HPO, you can get 5% off your first single order or 10% off a subscription order. Also, if you get a chance, head over to Instagram and Facebook and give them a follow or a shout out at Eat Fat Snacks and let them know that HPO is very grateful for their support. Now, back to the show. Peter, I saw a uh, recent uh, statistic, I think Dr. Sarah Place shared, that's, that stated that you know, as we project, you know, we're going to be hitting upwards of, you know, nine to, to close to 10 million people at, by the year 2050, that if, and this is a big if, but if we wanted to, and if we were to raise the efficiency standards of the rest of the world, which produces cattle, by the way, you know, United States only has a small percentage of the world's cattle population. We have something like 10% of the world's cattle population here. But if the rest of the world could adopt our breeding practices, our animal welfare practices, you know, some of our nutrition practices and, and, the, and bring that up, we could actually feed not only our current population, but the projected 10 million, 10 billion people, just as much meat as we produce now and use 53% less cattle than we currently have today. So we could have smaller herds of cattle, uh, you know, if, if we're going to maintain that cattle are a problem. Now, my my argument and your argument and guys like Alan Savory's argument might be, you know, we probably need more cattle out in, out in the rangelands and restoring some of this. So we could actually feed people, all even 10 billion people, more nutritious quality food, you know, via things like beef production, uh, dairy production, whatever, uh, save, save this uh, th these rangelands and convert some of this this dried out dust bowl cropland perhaps back into 
decent, decent agricultural land or soil and not have any more impact on greenhouse gases, which again are another topic which I think has been highly distorted. And so are you, are you familiar with the, that calculation? Yeah, I, I think that it's fair to point out that the 10% of the world's cattle that are in North America or in the U.S., I'm not clear on whether we included Canada in that, um, produce 20% of the world's beef. And, it, and it's a very high quality beef. A lot of the beef that's produced in other parts of the world tends to be of a lower quality. So, yes, you know, we could increase the productivity of the animals we already have. Arguably, we could produce more with fewer animals. So there's a benefit there. Uh, it's not just cattle that are part of the ruminant uh, family. We could sheep boats and deer and many other kinds of animals that might be more appropriate to different climates or different boats uh, zones. So to that point, yes, um, if we could increase the productivity and efficiency, we could produce sufficient animal products to improve the plane of nutrition of humanity. Right now, the majority, as I said earlier, the majority of protein in humanity's diet is coming from plants. Majority of calories coming from plants, and that's a problem. And we're seeing this manifest worldwide. Um, now, a lot of these issues are not the sort of animal science 101, agronomy 101 kind of answers. A lot of these have to do with sociology and stable government, you know, rule of law, distribution, infrastructure, those sorts of things. But I would argue that those are exactly the sorts of things that we ought to be striving to improve um, worldwide, rather than some of the things that tend to distract us here in the affluent, secure West. Um, we ought to be worried about how do we ensure that people have access to safe drinking water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, especially when we're dealing with a product like an animal product that is not as shelf stable as our plant-based carbohydrate, you know, sort of food-like substances. Um, and again, there's there's answers to that, and you know, clever people can can sort those things out. Part of this is getting people to imagine what the goal is and, and go toward that goal as opposed to conventional wisdom is now. Yeah, Peter, I see, you know, like we, we've got, you know, and, and, and I was just shocked to learn that Ethiopia has, behind, I think behind the United States, they have one of the largest cattle herds in the world. Uh, you know, I think it goes, I think it's, it goes like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's Brazil and then, uh, then India and then I think it's perhaps maybe China, U.S. or U.S. China, and then Ethiopia as the top, you know, cattle population in the world according to FAO data. And so, and, and there's a lot of cattle in Africa, and they're mismanaged very poorly. But to your point, you know, it's it seems like we're saying that okay, you poor, starving countries, rather than allow you to get more efficient at agriculture and be self-sustaining and utilize this resource that you may have. We're going to instead just make a very cheap, uh, poor quality grain product and just continue to export it to you guys and, 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 and not necessarily improve your, you know, your health. And, and I think that's, I mean, am I, am I, is that, is that a fair assessment as to what I'm trying to, trying to hit at? Yeah, I guess I'm somewhat 
amused might not be the right word, but I'll use it um, by the prospects of people being concerned about a natural diet, whatever that means. Um, you know, they're concerned about big and then fill in the blank business of some kind. And yet the idea that you could put into one entity's hands the production of a laboratory meat-like substance and somehow that would now be dressed up as green so therefore acceptable you know I, I, I find troubling as well as amusing um, the, the idea that uh, you could uh, well I was just struck the other day by looking at very similar wording that was housed in the Eat Lancet report and was part of the Dietary Goals for America, which was the Senate subcommittee report back in the mid-70s. And essentially they're saying almost word for word, well, those who would argue against us would say, okay, and Oh, by the way, we can't imagine any negative consequences for doing what we're recommending. It's like, well, one, either improve your imagination or two, listen to the people that are talking to you because they're telling you some potential negative consequences, but it doesn't seem to matter. They're going to argue these points. And so back to the, the negative um, narratives uh, I, I do use the image of a rope you know a hemp rope that has many fibers and 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 if in strands you know so many fibers make a strand many strands make the rope and it looks like a really strong rope but if you start testing each one of those strands or each one of those fibers you find that they fail so they fail on nutrition they fail on chronic health they fail on environmental impact well, what are you left with? Well, we just don't like it. Well, okay, that's you. That's fine. I, I don't want to force you to do anything you're not prepared to do, but stop acting as if you have all this justification and stop trying to influence food policy and developmental policy and uh, how funding goes to uh, support education and food security and research, which is the current case. All of those things are now a reality based on this mythology of what constitutes a healthy diet being plant-based, et cetera, et cetera. Here's how crazy it is. Every producer who sell, uh, every cattleman or a dairyman who every time one of their animals changes ownership, a, an amount of money goes into a fund a voluntary contribution. Now some of that goes to the national level, some of that's supposed to stay with the local level. There's some legal issues now that make that a little more complicated, but we'll just talk about at the national level, beef checkoff then is the sum uh, or the, the source of dollars. So they try to produce documents or, or advertising materials to promote the value of beef in the diet. Okay, they're going to use their own dollars to do this, except those pieces have to be approved by the Ag Marketing Service. Oh, and that's a part of USDA. 
where do we get our dietary guidelines from? Oh, USDA. So the, the money that they collect to promote their own product has to be, the, the product of that has to be approved by the people that are saying, don't eat too much of that beef. That's bad for you if you eat too much. Meanwhile, I don't see that same check against people promoting industrial oils or you know faux animal product replacements or any of this other stuff you know a kale a superfood are you kidding really you know the only two viable uses for kale are as forage or garnish as far as I'm concerned because um, yeah our ruminants can graze kale so um, it, it a lot of that stuff needs to get sorted. Um, there was recently an episode in Texas. The Texas Beef Council tried to get something placed, or they did, I don't know. They produced this. They, they got it into the, the some doctor's offices. Um, beef has a place in your, the diet of your high cholesterol patients, I think was the, the basic message. Now, if you know anything about that story, you know there's a lot of reasons to say that's not far enough by a long shot. It's a fairly timid, by my perspective, entry into that conversation. But even that was enough to trigger a complaint by the Physicians Committee for Social for, for Responsible Medicine, PCRM, the majority of whose members are not physicians. And the organization is an animal rights advocacy group. Uh, animal rights is very different than animal welfare. People miss that point. Um, so they, you know, lodged a complaint for deceptive advertising against the Texas Beef Council. This is the world that we live in. Yeah, Peter, it's it's very uh, disturbing to find out that the you know the the, the NCBA or or you know whoever gets it you know gets the checkoff dollars, even if they wanted to, to do a campaign that says you know eat beef it's healthy, eat beef it's healthy, uh, they're going to get shut down by the USDA, and, and that's that's a little disturbing to me. Uh, you know, they you, you, we all remember the beef it's what's for dinner thing that came out. Uh, you know, maybe it was what 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. I can't remember how long that's been. That, that was a yeah, you know, those were good ads. They were enjoyable. I mean, but I, I don't think they made any health claims. I mean, and, right. and, and they probably weren't allowed to. But I mean, you know, I think as, as you and I are probably aware, there's probably evidence that, that, that those claims can can start to be made. And, you know, we'll see how time goes on, you know, particularly as we, you know, maybe we'll get more people that will look into this crazy diet I'm on and we can actually get some data that, that people will accept. Yeah, I, um, I've, been, I've been trying to talk to people about, okay, so – you're limited in what you can say to the public. Okay, I get that. That needs to get sorted out. Okay, that's policy, politics, whatever. Okay, good. Work on that. Meanwhile, you know, you've got three quarters of a million ranches or farms in the United States where there are cattle, right? And that's just the production at that level. You know, then it goes through this entire chain, supply chain, all the way to retail. The people that work within that are all parts of families. They're all human beings. What can we do to make sure that people within that supply chain have up-to-date and accurate information 
so that you know if we say are you part of the 88 or are you part of the 12 are you part of the 88 percent of adult americans that don't enjoy optimal metabolic health and if you are then understand that we have confidence that a diet higher in this product than currently recommended could give you benefit right we could could make sure that they know metrics and they know how to track and see these things themselves um and i think that that would be a way to maybe do an end run as well as ultimately multiply right because somebody recently i was listening to them and you know a tipping point you don't have to get to 50 or 51 percent a tipping point could be 18 percent or 20 percent and so what can we do to um expand this group of people who have their own personal experience like you have you know uh, that zach has i've had and in whatever that is appropriate for individuals their life their circumstances right getting outside of this one size fits all illusion and what then is appropriate and or possible which is i think you know carnivore diet is showing is look there's, there's a range of can flourish on. We're beyond survival, right? We're, we're talking about enjoying, again, optimal health, um, vigor, all those things, enjoying life. So that may be wholly carnivorous, it may be omnivorous to varying degrees. What is it that's going to be a personal thing? Okay. Um, that, I think, is, uh, and again, I've, I've been talking to people. I'm uh, and find the right answer so far I haven't found yeah Peter I think you know as you know I, I think we talk you know we hear a lot about these whole food plant-based diets you know we, we, we the, the advocates that are saying that you're going to get better with this you know and, and we know that plant foods sugar comes from plants vegetable oils come from plants you know refined Twinkies come from plants for the most part. I can't remember they, they might have some animal product in that. But I mean, in general, we see a bunch of garbage food out there that's plant-based. And, and the people say, well, no, 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 you need a whole food plant-based diet. Well, we don't test this whole food animal-based diet. We don't have any data on that. You know, all we do is we have this standard American diet where people eat a bunch of garbage and they'll have some meat with it. And they'll say, well, now the meat is bad. And you, and you know how, how the confounder is. But I think as more and more people adopt either a fully carnivorous diet or a meat-based ketogenic diet or a meat-based low-carbohydrate diet. You know, just like we, we started to get some research studies done now on ketogenic diets and on low-carbohydrate diets, you know, as more and more people adopt that, I think the levers begin to be pulled where somebody's going to want to actually study it and somebody's going to want to fund it. I know I've got a friend out here in California who has relationships with the California Cattlemen's Board or California Cattlemen's Association. And I know he broached the subject of the, of the carnivore diet to those guys. He says, too controversial. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to get involved in this right now because we find it to be too controversial. We don't want to, you know, we want to, we want to continue to stick to our, have a scrap of lean meat with your meal. It's, it's, it's part of a healthy diet when, when in fact it could be an entire healthy diet or, you know, it could make up the majority of the diet. And I think this is something that uh, hopefully as we interact with more producers, as more, uh, processors, you know, I mean, the people that this livelihood depend on this actually start to understand that what they may be sitting on is a gold mine of health food. 
And I, I still think, you know, a lot of people, they raise cattle, you know, and they believe it's healthy, but they don't understand the full impact. Right. And, and so, and, and I think we also have to be aware that if you start talking about health food, that triggers various images in people's minds, right? And people within agriculture have for years now seen any number of bizarre claims come at them, right? And so you start talking about health food, well, that triggers, oh, okay, this is just more of that craziness, right? And, you know, then you start getting this, you know, everything in moderation and all these kinds of things that just make me crazy when I hear them. Um, I know where they're coming from. I understand. But part of what we have to work at in our improving our communication skills is be aware of all the narratives that we kind of drag along with us in conversations. And so to the point about whole food, you know, plant-based, whatever, that we, we understand that that's code word. Um, because in fact, it's not whole food, right? You don't rip up the soybean plant and eat the whole thing, right? You don't take up the corn stalk and eat the whole thing. Uh, the rice plant, whatever, is the majority of calorie source for humanity in those three crops. Um, so there's some degree of processing that goes, you know, into making those, you know, uh, sources of nutrition for humans. Um, so, it, again, we're, we're, there, there seems to be this desire to hide the reality and, and make some sort of imaginary life possible. Again, if we can step back and say, we've got to eat something, that food has to be produced somewhere, we're not going to all do it ourselves. Some people will. It's going to be conveyed to us as we're living our lives that are made possible because of this supply chain that now exists, right, that's global. Um, how do we weigh these things out? How do we objectively look at this? And then we can look at papers like, you know, that say the least harm principle may mean that we have to consume large herbivores right that actually it's 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 imaginable that the consumption of large herbivores produces le less harm to nature to other life forms than the production of grain commodities and then the consumption of those and as I'm recalling that they didn't even look at the impact on the humans that were consuming right and and now we have to look at what that cost is and it's not just in the affluent west it's worldwide and and it, we're, we're looking at countries that are trying to develop yet they're going to be held back because of the burden of chronic illness there's only so many resources to go around fiscal resources and so this is a reality um, that i don't think we've really been good enough about pointing to in these quote conversations about sustainability and, and what have you. So I, 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 what I am trying to argue amongst my forage agriculture tribe is look, we, we need to take this all on board. We need to do it personally because as I look at the audience, I see 
you know, metabolic illness manifesting itself amongst, you know, my my brothers and sisters in that audience. Um, and we're talking about people who know about forage agriculture, grazing management, soil health, all of these issues. They need to know this dietary message on a personal basis. And then we need to find ways all together so that we can advance the importance of this as we look for 2050 when we've got a billion more people. And we're going to advocate that we can feed that population a diet. Because right now they're talking about, or they being the UN, is projecting a need for increasing. In, they project an increase in demand for animal protein at 66%. By that time, the point that I make is that's based on what they think a healthy diet is. So what if it's more? <laughs> now we really have to up the game of ruminant animal agriculture around the world. And I think all of this is not um, a stretch. I, it's all foreseeable, it's all doable. People have to be introduced to the argument they then have to see the potential and again it's in the face of a competing set of narratives that we need to make people aware of first the existence of the narrative the poor grounding of that narrative in factual information and how if we go down that route that leads to certain outcomes versus what could be achieved if we go down this road and, and part of this is also very bizarre. I try to tell people, look, when you improve your own health, you are improving the world. And we really have these bizarre conversations where people who are told, look, if you, you, you now are diabetic, if you continue to eat this way, you have an increased risk of a foreseeable risk of losing first your toes, then your foot, then your leg, then we start on the other side, right? And that's what you know about uh, as an orthopedic surgeon. And so if there, there is an alternative, and if you eat this way, you will reduce the chance that that's where you'll go. And then we have, well, yeah, but what about the environment? Really? Really? We're having that conversation? You, you so diminish your own the value of your own health and life and longevity that you're willing to entertain this theory okay so let's talk about that theory let's talk about the fact that all of agriculture produces nine percent of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States okay and greenhouse gas emissions in the United States nine percent all of agriculture all of animal agriculture is four now, if I do the math real quick, that means plant agriculture produces more than, oh, that's interesting. And then if we look at just beef, it's somewhere in the two to 3% range. Really? That's what we're talking about? Oh, but the healthcare industry produces 10. Oh, well, that's interesting. Why, why do we not hear that in the conversation? Yeah, Peter, you know, you highlighted something that I've had, uh, experience with just you know when talking with people like it when, when you talk about animal agriculture and you start you know seeing stats thrown out there many of them tortured to trumpet it up to a higher number than it actually is because we're including things like the transportation arm and the system as a whole as opposed to just the ruminant side of it 
And anytime we, I get in a discussion like that, I, I automatically go to that and I say like, so that's a system problem or a transportation problem. So we shouldn't be sitting here arguing about cow farts and belches. We should be sitting here deciding, you know, if we have too many, too many problems with the system or too many problems with transportation, that's what we should be looking to work together to fix. Not this, like you said, like couple percentage contribution from the ruminant itself. And uh, it seems like a lot of times people, they just don't want to necessarily unpack that. And, and then if I press even further and say, look, we've identified that this is a transportation issue. We identified that this is potentially a system issue. Um, are you going to continue to like criticize me for eating meat, but then go drive a car, hop on an airplane, have another kid? You know, those are all things that are also going to be contributors. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it seems to me like you kind of have to look at it all as a whole, as opposed to just, you know, trying to like dumb it down to like cow farts and belches more or less. Right. Well, yeah. First of all, we'll, we'll point out, you know, that it's belches, not farts. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then we'll point out that if human beings are eating fiber that they're not digesting, there's going to be methane produced somewhere in that system. Right. Uh -huh. um, and, and there, I mean, they're complicated issues that too frequently get oversimplified and it usually is in service to an overall narrative that uh, I I've come to really, uh, resist the the issue of you know if, if you look at the the CO2 equivalent and again there's problems with that because we're learning that methane is of a shorter lifespan than we previously thought so that needs to be adjusted and then we find that you know there's a difference between methane that comes from ruminants and methane that comes from fossil fuel industry because the methane comes from ruminants as a cycling CO2 from the atmosphere through the plant to the cow back to the atmosphere. So there's no enrichment there. Enrichment takes place in CO2 in, in, in natural gas production, petrochemical, for example. And again, those those are cost-benefit things that we have to look at there. You know, in the upper Midwest recently, it's a very good thing that there's reliable fuel available to heat the homes, <laughs> right? Because we're talking kill you cold there recently. Um, so again, but we're not good at sort of pulling those things apart. And, and again, there's people, frankly, who are looking for power and they're looking for control. And this is something that they see as a way to achieve that. There are many levels to this argument. The least that we can do is acknowledge the numbers are frequently used to represent the greenhouse gas emissions by ruminant animals, specifically are, you should pardon the expression, inflated, right? Just like the water consumption values that are used to produce beef are frequently bloated. Sorry, I couldn't resist. So when we start to recognize that this is a consistent pattern by people who are advocating against the consumption of animal products, well then, okay, that should be weighed in balance. If I use the best estimates for CO2 equivalents 
per pound of raw boneless beef and I go to two pounds per person per day on an annual basis, that's less than the tailpipe emissions of a car driving um, for a year that gets um, 16,000 miles it's less than driving 16,000 miles a year in a car getting 25 miles per gallon. Just looking at tailpipe emissions. So that, and, I mean, Peter, I mean, that, that is a shocking statistic there, you know, because two pounds of beef a day per person is, I mean, that's almost as much as, I mean, I eat a little more than that because I'm a bigger guy, but, that, but people on a carnivore diet, that's typically what they eat. And that is far, far, far much more than the average American eats. The average American eats only about two and a half ounces a day. And so you're saying that, you know, even if we ate as much as 20 times as much beef as we do today, it still would only approach what we get from auto pipe emissions. I think that's a shocking fact. And I think that's something that this is the type of stuff that people need to know in this, in, when I'm talking about this 10 second soundbite type of thing. You know, the other fact that you brought up that is that, you know, cattle production, the numbers I've seen, you know, around 2% of our, of, of our U.S. greenhouse gases are emitted via cattle. And again, we can talk about the nuances of, of how important methane is or not. And we'll get into that in great deal with, with Frank Mitlauder uh, in a week or so. Uh, but when we say that healthcare produces 10% of our greenhouse gases, cows produce 2% of our greenhouse gases. If I choose to participate in cows, and not the healthcare system, which is a better option, you know? And, and, and again, it's going to be, and people are going to debate, and this is where the health argument comes to, because people are going to debate, well, if you're eating a bunch of cows, you're, you're automatically going to be sick and you're going to be part of the healthcare system. That, that is, I think one of the, when we're making that argument, that that's, that's something that we have to sort of, you know, find a real answer on that because I'm finding the exact opposites occurring that, that by eating a lot of cows, contributing to 1.9 or 2% of our greenhouse gases, I am completely avoiding the healthcare system, uh, which is pr producing 10% of our greenhouse gases. And so I think this is a nice, another fact that we can, we can put into place. And I think we need to get out there and have these big numbers, 10% versus 2%, which one do you want to contribute to? Or I can eat two pounds of beef a day and produce less greenhouse gases than the tailpipes. You know, I mean, these are the things that are out there. These, these little, uh, you know, you know, hit you over the head things. And I think a lot of people need to be hit over the head. I mean, the, the argument that we, you and I make, and a lot of people make, you know, it takes 20 minutes to make the argument and, it, and it's confusing and it's, it's complicated. And, and obviously there's a lot of complexity in the system there, but I do think we need to find these, these sort of stunning facts that, 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 that people can grasp within a second. And, and, and you don't have to have a great deal of intelligence or education necessarily, uh, to, to, to understand this stuff. And I think we need yeah. more of this stuff out there. Yeah. And, and, um, the, the, the one qualification on that 10%, I mean, I have the paper, I'm happy to share it. Uh, I think that, uh, Dr. Mitlerner would push back a little bit as he looked at it. He wasn't sure that we weren't like double pounding for some things within that analysis. Right. But it does make the point that it's sort of like you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Right, that, that there, you know, what is one of the most significant sources of meta, uh, medical waste in the United States? Oh, well, that would be dialysis. 
right? Well, that's a downstream effect from a species inappropriate diet, isn't it? So how do you, you know, sort of bring these things into the conversation? I absolutely agree. We have to get better at, at communicating and that means exactly what you're saying. I'll give you an example. I used to have a graphic where you're looking at a bunch of Jersey cows, right, in, in one picture and, and Jerseys are a, a breed of dairy cows. And, and in the other, you've got a picture of me on my hands and knees with my mouth open in this big, you know, sort of specialty pasture. And, and the tag was above the, the Jerseys, we eat plants and then under me was so you don't have to well okay the jersey cows they're they're curious animals and so they're all they have their heads through these stanchions and they're all looking at me when i take the picture but then i'm looking at this going if you have no experience with dairy animals or with dairy or with livestock agriculture and you look at those animals with their heads through the stanchion do you automatically understand that they voluntarily put their head through that and can voluntarily remove it that they're just in there because they want to see what's going on or do you see this as some sort of restraint right that these animals somehow are confined there in that moment so I went and pulled that picture off the graphic and replaced it with a picture I took in Brazil of these you know, specialty berry breed animals that are all kind of nibbling on this very tall plant. Again, we see things we're used to seeing, but if we might need to re-examine from the perspective of what would somebody see who doesn't have all that background and experience. A quick example, again, for me, North Dakota, nor, you know, in New England, when you clear the field, you build stone walls, right? Because you got to do something with a rock and you need a fence and you build the stone wall. Uh, North Dakota, you're not going to build stone walls around your field. So what they did is they just threw all those rocks into one, in, into piles and then they farm around the piles. Well, today you can see that these are piles on pedestals because the ground that they've been farming around it they've been losing soil and so that soil surface is lower well I drove from Fargo to Bismarck right down that highway and looked at all this didn't know what I was looking at I learned at the North Dakota grazing lands coalition meeting about this now I'm driving back and I'm seeing it so until we learn, so we have to we have to work at ways to get information in front of people, help them kind of onboard it, um, and and then hopefully people begin to see things in a new way. Yeah, I think um, you know your point about the crop. I mean, I think this is the other misconception people have because you know obviously the whole world is not going to go all plant based. I mean, that's just not going to happen nor is the whole world going to go completely animal-based. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And so we have this interaction between growing crops, whatever they may be, and then growing, you know, animals, you know, ruminants, chickens, whatever. You know, that's going to be continue to happen for the, for the foreseeable future, despite what Bill Gates says, despite what Richard Branson says. You know, the people in China are not going to suddenly decide they don't like meat anymore. They're, they're getting a taste for it. And they're going to want more of it. But... What we have to understand is, you know, you know, we, we, we've almost got, you know, even in this community, we've got people that are like, 
attacking the plant agriculturalists. You know, they're saying that they're all evil as well. And I think, as you probably know, there are some good farmers out there and there's been some very tremendous improvements in our plant agricultural too. And I know when people talk about glyphosate and this and that stuff, but, but again, I think that complex is also uh, much more complicated than, than, than most of us understand. You probably understand more better than I do. And I, I'm certainly not a, a, a corn advocate. I don't, I don't advocate people eating corn or, or strawberries, but at the same time, I understand that, you know, if you're going to continue to produce those things, it has to be done in a sustainable way. Can, uh, and I know that's out of, a little bit out of our topic, but I think it's well, there's, there's, I guess there's no sustainable food system without animal agriculture. It's just, it's just not, not happening. And even the models where they've looked at removing animal agriculture from North America and you find minimal effect on greenhouse gas emissions, but at the cost of the sustainability of the food system as well as nutrient deficiencies. So we, we have to accept that there are differences in yield between cropping systems and livestock systems. And so we're always going to end up with some hybrid um, between the products of crop agriculture going to support animal agriculture. That's always going to be part of reality. Um, and, and that's in ruminant as well as monogastric systems. So all of these are going to be necessary. There are challenges, there are issues, they're real. Um, my concern is that we get distracted from doing, sort of addressing both problems by having to respond to these um, made up issues and, and the eat lancets of the world um, that really when you can look at them especially part of our problem is that we have all of these silos of great expertise but we have a challenge communicating between those silos and coming up with a, 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 a unified uh, message in response to people who don't seem to be reluctant to from outside your areas of expertise and make great pronouncements and get great publicity and you know, advocate for their belief system. And people are entitled to their belief system, but I really don't think it should be the basis of policy or um, food security or you know guidance. Yeah, I mean, if Alec Baldwin <laughs> can get a speaking position at the UN to talk about his views on nutrition, I sure as hell am not going to be quiet about my views. I mean, you know, I mean, who's to say who's the expert there? And I think all of us, uh, this is one sort of thing that I think is, and hopefully as we come together in these conferences, we can talk about it. But one thing I think the low carb community and, or, you know, like I said, paleo, ancestral health, real food, whatever needs to come together and organized and have a organized sort of message out there. And, and I think we failed to do that. I mean, too many people are promoting that their diet is better than the other diet and paleo is better than this and keto is better than that and carnivore is better than this. And I think that only serves to uh, weaken us, you know, and I think we're all trying to say the same message. I, I think all of us would agree animal nutrition is, is part of a diet and whole foods are part of a diet. And I think as a community, as we come together, you know, we, we have to organize better. We have to get our messages out. We need to, uh, you know, 
include the producers. I mean, hell, the producers should understand this stuff. I mean, you know, I mean, they're, cause they're, they're subject to, you know, as a physician who should have known better. I mean, I thought the same thing. Oh yeah. Eat a bunch of plants, eat a bunch of fruits and vegetables and grains and, you know, and eat everything in moderation and have a balanced diet. And, 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 you know, this is just, this is just the, the, the collective consciousness. And, but until we stand up and say, Hey, look, Stop eating the garbage. We don't want your Beyond Meat burgers, which are canola oil and 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 cellulose and you know maltodextrin and twenty five flavor enhancements. We don't want that crap. And if we export that stuff to the developing world, you know, and you know, all we're going to see is more of the same metabolic destruction. You know, a weak, sick populace who will then then what we do is next we export all our drugs to them. You know, well, I mean, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, just recently, there was this, you know, there's not going to be enough insulin. It's like, well, so maybe there's another approach beyond mandating insulin availability. Um, so uh, to back to the producer thing, I, I think if we can find ways to bridge, if we can find ways to get outside of the us versus them, if we can find ways to communicate, you know, people – you know, it's a hard thing to say, but not everybody's concerned about their health, right? There's a certain percentage of the population that just, you know, um, but people who are concerned about their health, what information are they getting that they then base their decisions on? So how do we get better at communicating, let people know uh, the reality of food production system that we have versus what we used to have? which somehow gets romanticized and idealized when in fact it wasn't that. Um, and, and how do we, how do we get better at just saying, okay, you know, people are, most of the population is busy trying to live their lives. They're raising families, they're working one or two jobs, you know, they're just trying to take care of stuff. And, and meanwhile, you know, convenience is an issue. Affordability is an issue. What are we telling them in terms of within that reality and whatever background they have ethnically? You know, what, what ought you be eating? What sorts of metrics of health are meaningful and what aren't? Which aren't? You know, how, how can we get that information out there recognizing that it's going to go into a reality where you've got all these competing interests and, and, and voices coming at you? Um, I think that it's all doable. I think we live in a world, things, well, I think Gary Taubes talks about how the book that he, uh, I think Good Calories, Bad Calories, he said he couldn't have written that book 10 or 20 years earlier because of his access to, you know, used bookstores and journals and libraries that he didn't physically have to show up at. So we do have a different reality today, but we do have to get, be aware of the nuances of communication and rhetoric and, and words mean things and images mean things. And, you know, how do we communicate with people of goodwill? Uh, I think that's another phrase I try to keep in mind. But possible to be sincerely wrong. And, you know, if, if, if I, I carry that for myself as well. If, a, if an honest man is shown to be in error, he either ceases to be in error or he ceases to be honest. And so we'll figure that out, right? Um, people of goodwill may have gotten bad information somewhere along the line. They believe it, 
and they're acting on it and they may even promote it. I think that there are, however, a certain number of people involved in this space that know the truth but maintain the lie, right? That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a different deal. And, and okay, so we need to be discerning enough to recognize who we're dealing with here and yet communicating in a way that the people who are watching the conversation aren't put off by it, if that makes sense. So that's a challenge I'm trying to incorporate myself. Yeah, you know, the one thing I think about too, especially with how with the Eat Landsat stuff coming out, it's like when you take a close look at that, like it's almost absurd enough that it could get backlash from both ends of the spectrum. Like it, it, I, I see it as kind of like you highlighted it, Peter. Like I see it as like if that had come out 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it probably flies over everyone's radar and everyone's like, okay, I guess that's what it is. Whereas I feel like today with the amount of access to information we have, you know, it has just as good a chance of getting a backlash from the vegan vegetarian group because when you look at how minimal the actual quote unquote whole food plant options are on that protocol, it's it's about as egregious on that end as it is on the lack of meat end of things. So it, it seems like anyone willing to really look at that um, is gonna is gonna find problems with it, regardless of whether they're vegan or carnivore or anything other than standard American diet packaged food, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree. There's there's a certain amount of is this the best you got kind of response to this, um, but at the same time, we, we shouldn't. We shouldn't minimize them. They're, they're there. They need to be taken seriously in the mid and long term. Uh, it's been very much a sort of, you know, reactive phase. And, and now we come to the next stages. Um, but at the same time, I'm almost wondering if this isn't, a, I'm, I'm waving my right hand while you don't see the left coming kind of thing. And so we can see what's happened with the dietary guidelines being released in Canada right, which are plant-based. They're, they're apparently playing games with the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee formation in the United States in the creation of the ninth edition of the Dietary Guidelines. You know, they're losing application packets. They're, you know, sort of business as usual kind of stuff. So while I do, you know, kind of look at that and go, wow, that was a yawner. I'm also suspicious of, okay, what's next? What else is coming? And, and uh, yeah, they, they certainly have a plan. They certainly have a strategy. And so it, more will come. Yeah, I saw, you know, when I look at the, the Eat Lancet proposed diet for global health or whatever they want to call it, and, and you know, 57% of the calories are grain, sugars, soybean, and, and oils, you know, plant oils, uh, you know, it's almost a joke. I mean, it's, it's, I call it a human pet food diet, but I mean, I think, you know, maybe it's just, you know, it's like we're in a negotiation and, and, and we've just, we've just way overbid and we want you to counter and, and, and have your compromise. Maybe they're seeking compromise and they'll have something that, that still uh, takes us farther away from, from animal, animal, animal reduced products and, and drive us more to inevitably, and this is a thing that people don't understand. When you give up animal nutrition, and, and we see that clearly with animal fats as we've decreased our utilization of butter and lard and tallow, it clearly gets pro replaced with processed foods. We didn't replace the butter and the lard with beans and kale. We replaced it with, with vegetable oil and sugar. 
and, and that's going to continue to happen. And I think it's just a, uh, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, and I've, I've seen Nina Teichel's talking about the fact that, uh, you know, Sarah Halberg's application, uh, John and Itis's application got lost. You know, the USDA just lost it because we don't want these people in the guidelines committee. To me, you know, I mean, it, it, it's hard not to get cynical when you see, when you see stuff like that happening and you just have to wonder what more can we do? I mean, surely, you know, as we know, I mean, this, this, this plant-based vegan population is only going to remain a small percentage just because it, most of them can't do it for health reasons. And so we've got this very vocal minority. And I think that the majority of the people in the world, I mean, certainly if you talk to some, somebody that's, you know, living in subsistence poverty in Central Africa, if they had the choice, could they get more beef? They would say, hell yes, we'd want more beef. But if you ask the average American, you know, to say, do you want to go on a fully plant-based diet? Almost all of them would say no, uh, you know. And so we have to mobilize these people in the middle uh, to get them to understand that, hey, you're, you're being led down this path of, you know, further just, if you like what you, if you don't like what you have now, which is, joint pain and, and obesity and, you know, depression and reliance on, you know, all kinds of drugs and skin issues. Guess what? You got more of the same and much more coming. And so what are you going to do? To, what are you going to do to change that? In, in, indeed. And uh, back to this idea, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a noble goal to improve the world. Um, there are effective ways of doing that and there are ineffective ways of doing that and the ineffective ones have more to do it seems to me with somehow achieving virtue without doing the hard work that virtue requires right it's it's like give me a pill that makes me physically fit well you know <laughs> um if it were available um maybe it would be better in the long run to actually do the work of diet and appropriate exercise rather than trying to find the quick fix um, rather than i think adele height says that americans love the idea of saving the world by shopping and well um really do you, do you really think that buying the xyz product with the ABC label claim on it is really going to have that kind of an effect on the environment or on the world when at the same time you could make a personal sacrifice and invest in a project like Heifer International or find somebody that's working on safe water you know uh, supply systems for parts of the world that don't yet enjoy safe reliable drinking water um, in their village, let alone in their home. Um, there, there are lots of ways that we can make a difference. Um, and I encourage people to find the ones that best fit them and sit in the moment. Um, and I get back to the idea of we haven't been well educated in what health means. There used to be physical education classes. There used to be physical fitness tests might not be a bad idea to dust some of those off and see how we do. This idea that 88% of adult Americans don't enjoy optimal metabolic health. Well, are you part of the 88 or are you part of the 12? Um, which would you like to be? Um, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that we could each make improvements in ourselves. I'm not saying you, um, you know, I can't run 
I, I can't begin to tell you how little I can run. Part of that's because I was born with a club foot, but part of it's because I'm not as fit as you. Um, but people don't have to be, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, can you can you do ten good push-ups? Can you know, right? But what what can we do to improve ourselves? And then look, and the, you you talk to Dr. Phillips. Um, I mean, how many people end up being institutionalized as they age because they lack the physical strength or the muscle mass? Well, that muscle mass is not going to be maintained by the plant source diet. It, it's, it's going to have to be maintained on animal food, you know, animal source food containing diet. Because if, if we don't utilize as young adults, plant source protein as well as animal source protein, you know that's going to get worse as we become older adults. So uh, somebody who's 62 years old, uh, that's something that's of interest to me. And, you know, we, we, we have a population that's increasingly aging and we get to look at all that. So, yeah, how do we communicate effectively? How do we discern the groups that we're speaking with? How do we stop carrying along narratives that aren't critical to the message right so how do we uh, avoid some of the errors that can get in the way of communicating um, people hear what we're saying differently than we mean it we haven't considered it and now there's a barrier where we really there didn't need to be one you know how do we how do we get beyond all that in this uh, quote-unquote conversation so all these are challenges that I'm trying to take on board as I just try to communicate the, the factual information about ruminant animal agriculture, the role of ruminant animal products and health, and then introduce producers to the community of people such as yourselves or physicians and clinicians that are doing this kind of work or researchers that are doing this kind of work. So one of one of my achievements is next year at my American Forage and Grassland Council meeting, I've got Dr. Frank Mitlerner coming, Dr. Eric Westman, and hopefully by then Dr. Adele Height all coming to be a panel to talk about sustainability from pasture to plot. And how do we get better at considering the sustainability questions involved across that space, not just in some small separate section? Awesome. Yeah, uh, th this has all been awesome information. I think we're, we're, we're stoked to have you on for a, a second round, Peter. Um, and I did check while we were talking. You were our first official guest. We just recorded four kind of like intro slash Q&A type stuff. So that was episode five. If people are curious to kind of pair this one with that. Um, you know, that's the one to kind of go with it today. Maybe a little bit of uh, um, similar information as well. So thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any uh, anything to plug in terms of stuff that you've been doing that you want our listeners to check out if they're if they're interested? Well, sure. They can find me all over social media. I um, on Twitter and at Instagram at grass-based, one word. Um, I have a Facebook page called Grass-Based Health, three words. You can look for my name on YouTube. Um, I put a lot of videos up there. I try to keep them organized because I get interested in lots of different things and people might get lost looking through it. Um, 
you can find me on Facebook. You can find me at peter.ballersted at gmail.com. Happy to help people find information. I'll be at the Carnivore Conference. I don't know when this episode will air. Um, I'll be at Low Carb Denver. And then there's a couple other low carb and ketogenic um, meetings that I'll be at throughout the rest of the year. So I hope to meet people. Um, I hope to continue to help people understand um, one of the, I'll be standing next to a poster at, in Denver and it's guilt-free health. This idea that you can enjoy health by eating things you've been taught to feel are bad. So there's the guilt on that side, you don't have to worry about it. And on the other side, this idea of the environmental impact and trying to feel there as well. So uh, I'm out and about and always happy to meet people. Wonderful, Peter. Well, I will see you at the carnivore convention there in, in, in Boulder in a couple of weeks. So I'm looking forward to that as well. And then, uh, uh, you know, we'll keep, keep, keep pushing and fighting the good fight. Cause I think we, we we're, you know, I think we have to. A steak a day keeps the doctor away. It does. It does indeed. <laughs> Speaking of that, I'm going to go get one. I haven't had I haven't had one yet today. So. Excellent. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.